Welcome to Red, White, and Brown, a podcast that discusses the interesting upbringing of first-generation Desi Americans. I'm Prerak. And I'm Sophia. So today, Sophia, we're going to be talking about a very important topic, which is racism. I think given everything that has happened this year, especially with the Black Lives Matter protests during the summer and, and with the instance with George Floyd and multiple other black men that have been killed with p- police brutality, I think we need to look into this issue, but I think we should do it from the lens of being Desi American. Uh, but before I start, I do want to make sure I note that we know that there is this aspect of cancel culture, and I want everyone to know that we're not trying to cancel anyone because I know that we all are just trying to learn, and this podcast is intended to educate. So we're hoping that by discussing these issues, everyone, ourselves included, can better respond to the racism that we see or maybe we ourselves are contributing to and improve, right? Because that's what this is all about. So just note that everything we say is, is intended to educate and improve, not to cancel and outright dismiss anyone because I don't think that's fair. So with that being said, Sophia, uh, how do you want to start? Um. I think it would be reasonable for us to start this discussion by delving into just what it's like being first generation in the U.S. and like by extension being a minority race, Um, just like what experiences characterize that for us. And then we can talk about racism. But let's just start by discussing race and like kind of what that means to us. What do you think? That's that's perfect. Um, and I can start, right? Because I think my experience is, is immensely privileged and I'll be the first to recognize it. Because I was lucky enough to, to go from India, uh, where I was living for about five years, and then go straight to the Bay Area. And if anyone knows anything about the Bay Area, it's that it's like – a home away from home for like Asians because almost all of my friends were Indian. There's a pretty large proportion of Indians, uh, Pakistanis, um, Asian people. So there's a lot of all of those um, immigrant uh, populations. So in that regard, I never really felt like too much of an outsider Hmm. because there's just so many of us there. Um, And so there were small instances here and there where I definitely feel like I wasn't like American, so to speak. So for example, like my mom used to pronounce the word hereditary as hereditary and like esophagus Mm -hmm. as like esophagus so I used to say those words in those ways Mm -hmm. so like there's always like small instances like that where I'm like wow like I'm not the same as the people here but I never explicitly was like oh my god I'm not like most people because as I said I was lucky enough to be in the one place in America where like there's a large concentration of of South (laughs) Asians so in that regard I, I never really felt too too different what about you Sophia? That's so interesting. We've never talked about this um, off mic, so I, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Um, I kind of imagined that, like, oh, you're this little kid, your family brought you over from India, you're, like, this fobby little, like, you know, kid in class who, like, doesn't know English, but it sounds like you actually... Uh, moved to a community where there were a lot of a lot of exactly Indians. like that exactly like that yeah so like that's my best, kind of nice yeah my, my best friend is the exact same trajectory we came here at the same time we like got green cards at the same time so it's Aww. like there, there was a lot of that exactly what you're saying so I'm saying I'm, I agree with you it's not common but I was lucky enough to, to grow up in that sort of environment yeah. okay cool um so for me I was born here I was born in Chicago which is a very diverse city mm-hmm. um But I think that I was in the minority, at least in terms of, like, in school. I definitely had a lot of South Asian family and friends, um, just, like, within our community, but not who I went to school with. Mm -hmm. So in school, 100%. I was the minority, like, probably one of, you know, two South Asian people in my my class. Yeah. I actually could not even imagine what that is like, because that never happened. That was not your experience. Yeah, exactly. 
Um, so I feel like, yeah, when the teacher would never know how to pronounce my last name or like people maybe thinking my lunch was weird. I don't know. Like my parents did give me like American food for lunches, but like, I don't know. I feel like there was that one or two instances where like people thought my food was weird or kids would ask me like, what are you? Yep. You know, like meaning like, what race are you? Exactly. Because even though I was, you know, born and raised in Chicago, a lot of the students at my school just literally didn't know any South Asian people. Like, they had never really seen someone that looked like me. A lot of them would assume that I was Hispanic. Mm. Um, or, like, I, I, I don't know, like... Anything mixed, basically. Yeah, yeah. Like, they wouldn't... They didn't just... They didn't know that, like, India and Pakistan were countries, you yeah, know? Yeah, um, And so, like, even though my school was diverse, that means there are black kids and Hispanic kids. That... You know what I mean? Like, yeah. in Chicago, diverse means, like, there's white, black, and Hispanic. But then, Not like, South Asian. So yeah, not South Asian. So, like, if you are South Asian or Middle Eastern, that was, like, really, really a minority in in my experience. <laughs> yeah. Um, less so in high school, but, like, all through elementary school, for sure. Definitely. So, it seems like we definitely had different experiences because it seems like you very evidently knew you were a minority from the get-go yeah. and I, I definitely was was sheltered enough to, to kind of trick myself into not um, <laughs> not realizing yeah. it yeah so I think that's like a pretty good segue into the topic of race in the South Asian community as a whole so now we've talked about us as South Asians being minorities now let's talk mm-hmm. a bit about like the aspect of race within South Asian uh Communities Like South Asian American exactly. communities, right? Exactly. So, yeah, I think generally um, within the South Asian American community, I was talking about, like, I was talking about this with my husband and just how, like, in the U.S., I feel like South Asians are sensitized to race in a way that back home they see people are not, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like if you're the only girl in a room full of, like, guys – you're sensitized to gender, right? You're acutely aware that you are the only girl in that room. Yes. And so it's the same with race. When you're the minority race, then that factor, race, becomes more salient. Mm-hmm. Whereas back home, everyone is the same race. So people are not sensitized to that. People so they're are, sensitized to other things. Yeah. Exactly. Like religion or social class or, you know, stuff like that. But not race because everyone is pretty much the same, you know, race. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting because, like, In India, for example, I think there are conflicts between Muslims and Hindus, um, but here in the U.S., it's just different. Like, if there's a Desi kid, like, a Desi Muslim and a Desi Hindu kid in the same class, like, they're going to become best friends because they're the only two Desis there, you know? That's that's such a good point um, because I I think it's – that's exactly – the way you described that is exactly – eloquently said, which is back when everything is the same, we find ourselves to distinguish on other facets that are the next level. Like the, yeah, we notice the differences. Exactly. So when we're in a community where the differences are purely like racial, then you start realizing like, oh my God, there's, there's this other brown guy. This other person that looks like me, like I'm going to become their friend. And like, that's what happens. And that's kind of what happened with one of my best friends in in college. His name is Bilal. And I was just like, dude, this guy is brown. Let's let's talk. And we talked and we, we related on like so many family values, cultural values, and just even academic values. And then I realized like, oh, like you're Muslim and I'm, I'm, I'm Hindu. And I realized that that's the difference, but it's so funny because I would have never assumed that. Yeah, like, we like still that had, wasn't the salient thing. Yeah. We still had those commonalities that still made me relate to him. Um, so it's just interesting that we do that because to date, some of my best friends like you included are Desis and yet 
I don't even make the delineation now of like Muslim, oh, like Muslim. and Hindu, which is much more prominent back back home. Yeah, so I, I agree. I feel like it just goes to show that if you look for the differences, like you'll find a thousand differences, but mm-hmm. if you look for the similarities, like you'll find a thousand similarities. Exactly. And like self fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's a shame that I feel like people back home don't realize that or like that these conflicts exist because we look at it from the outside and it's like no, like we're the same, like genetically we're the same. Like, we're much more similar than we are different. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So okay. So race is one thing, um, and yes, we are in the minority race here in the U.S., mm-hmm. um, but let's talk about racism, and I think we can kind of start by discussing generally racism within the South Asian American community, mm-hmm. and honestly, like, specifically racism towards black people, mm-hmm. because sometimes people try to lump racism together and say, like, oh, I'm South Asian, and someone was once, like, prejudiced towards me, so now I'm a victim of racism, too. But that is not the same thing. No, it's not. It's definitely not. It's yeah. like, black people and the structural racism that they face. And, frankly, you know, that they have faced for 400 years in this country. Yeah, way to, way to be very bold about that, because it is 100% not the same thing. And I, again, coming from a very privileged background, can say, like, I truly don't know what the racism feels like. And even if I did, my experiences as a South Asian do not parallel those from, obviously, someone who's an African-American. It's an entirely different situation because just think about it. The way this country was made, the very documents that laid the foundation of this country, like the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, those were written by people who owned slaves. And we we treat these documents as the rule of law to this day. The institutions mm-hmm. that have all come about, that have made America today, stem from the laws of the Constitution, which were written by people who owned slaves, right? And so inherently within those laws, whether we agree or not, there's going to be some level of bias that is against this one particular race, and that yeah. is institutionalized. That is drastically different from um, someone you know, not being able to pronounce my last exactly. name. Exactly, that is like worlds apart, right? And so that's mm-hmm. what I want to want people to understand. Like that's what you mean when you say institutionalized. Like the very foundation of this country is built on these documents, which were written by people who, yeah. no, like, I, clearly I did not value all races the same. You know? Yeah. So absolutely. So that's that's what I think you were meaning, and I think that's what I, why that I totally concur with, which is the racism that I would face, even as a Desi person, is not nearly the same as um, someone yeah. who is living with these institutions that were built off of um, racism to a, to a certain extent. I agree. I agree. Yeah. Um, and so, obviously, we're trying to talk about racism within our community. Mm-hmm. And I want to say, like, the point of this is not to put our families on blast and say, like, oh, my parents once said this XYZ racist thing. No, we're not, we're not canceling. Yeah, exactly. No. <laughs> and I think it's more so recognizing that, like, our community in general is racist towards black people. It is. Yes. And perhaps, like towards other groups too, but definitely towards black people. And I think when it comes to individual families, like some families are obviously more racist than others, but this is a problem in our community in general. And I think you and I can agree on that. I mean, yes. Yeah. That's like the one foundational principle that should, we all should agree on. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Like a lot of families will just straight up say racist things or like not allow their kids to be friends with black kids or something. Um, and in other families, it's more subtle. Like they'll lock the doors when a black person walks by mm. their car or something. Um, or like they'll comment about a Desi person who married a black person and they'll show that they're disapproving of that. Yeah. Um, whatever it is, like there is 
this racism, this anti-blackness. We see it when skin color is mentioned and, you know, there are products like Fair and Lovely on the market to help people achieve a lighter skin tone. Like, it really varies, but that racism is there. And I hope that, you know, those of you listening, I hope your families are not racist. But I think chances are there have been some, like, instances of subtle racism in the language and the actions that you may have picked up on within your own families and communities. I mean, I've picked up on it by myself on some of the things I say even, Mm -hmm. right? And so, yeah, I'll just go put myself out there and say, like, you know, I'm not, like, preaching saying, like, I'm perfect, but I I think we all can improve here. It it exists within all of us. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you're right, right? Like, there is this way that it's entered our languages, and it's very subtle sometimes in the way we even do it, right? Like, for example, in Indian matchmaking, remember, like, just someone saying, I want someone who's more fair, or I want someone who's, like, not... Um, or not at, like, it's just the contrapositive. They'll say, like, someone who's not as fair is a negative connotation, whereas someone who is more fair is, like, a positive connotation. Yeah. And yeah. fair here is directly related to, to the shade of skin color. Yeah. More fair is more white. Like, that is anti-blackness. And right when you there. say, like, oh, not as fair is a negative, mm-hmm. is, is literally saying, like, oh, someone who's darker is, is, a, is a negative. Yeah. And so there's clearly, there's this implicit bias. And whether we recognize it or not, we have to educate ourselves in like knowing knowing that this exists and that there is this aspect that even if we may not understand it is built into the way we speak i totally agree i mean i think it might be helpful to talk about specific things within our culture that are problematic Mm -hmm. um and i think this is just like an important step since like the ultimate goal is becoming anti-racist right so you kind of touched on one which is the shadism colorism stuff Mm -hmm. and i think it goes beyond just skin color right Yeah, I definitely think it goes beyond just skin, right? So everything that's often associated with being associated with white people is considered good, while everything that is more common amongst, honestly, our own group, and even like minorities such as African Americans is bad. So if you think about it, like straight hair is considered better than curly hair, lighter skin better than darker. Uh, And for example, daisies tend to be shorter, and they also tend to be curvier, and yet we prefer that like in Indian matchmaking, we saw like the moms prefer like a tall, thin body type, which is kind of similar to what we see in, in white people. Or, or moms may want a girl who's at least five foot three, which as we know, as I just said, facey girls tend to be shorter. So it just goes to show that the preference for whiteness and white people qualities has permeated through all cultures. And it isn't just real limited, limited particularly to, to skin, uh, skin tone, right? Yeah, um, no, I totally agree with that. It, it's within it's like everything yeah it's totally um i think that's like a really good observation um and i feel like so there was during i think the summer there was like this controversy about this song that came out um and it was titled beyonce sharma jayagi which is uh there was like a whole debacle around it wait so beyonce is in the title beyonce, yeah it's in the title <laughs> and this song it's like ananya pande and ishan Qatar and like basically like there were a few lines that were problematic and it received a lot of backlash um and like the problematic line was i think which there are like multiple layers of problems here like one being the, the line literally translates to like Upon seeing you, oh, fair-skinned one, Beyonce, who will be put to shame. Oh, I see. I see. So it's like literally using the fair skin as a compliment and then saying, like, Beyonce is not good enough. 
Yeah. Even, compared and, to you. And it's, so the girl in the song, Ananya Bande, like, I guess this line is, like, kind of complimenting her, like, her dancing and her looks and stuff, saying, mm-hmm. like, she's better than Beyonce, which, like, I don't know. Obviously, there's colorism there, right? Using, like, fair as a compliment. Mm-hmm. But the second issue is that Beyonce is literally a better artist than 99% of Bollywood, right? Like Beyonce is the queen yeah, of artists. Yeah, like, the whole world recognizes, like, that she is just an incredible artist. And she's just, like, a different level of talent than the majority of Bollywood. Yeah. So, like, to even compare her to Ananya Bande is, like, an insult to her, right? Like, she's not also not just a singer. Like, she's, like, a revolutionary. Not to mention, this wasn't even just comparing. This was quite literally putting down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, there was this whole backlash and, like, they had to change the name of the song um, and, like, remove her from it. And the other sad part is that earlier... Uh, Beyonce released, um, you know, Brown Skin Girl. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, it was this celebration of women of color, and, like, the imagery is stunning. And, like, she actually included a Desi woman in the video, and, like, she didn't need to do that, right? Like, this is mostly an ode to her community, like, to black women, but she includes women of other races. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, even after that, Bollywood then goes on to insult her by making this sort of cheap comparison. It's it's so crazy. It's like Honey Singh insulting, like, Lata, or, like, even comparing himself to Lata, which is an insult, right? Or yeah. it's like a college basketball player comparing himself to LeBron James. Yeah, like, who do you think you are? Absolutely. I think that's... Um, and it's also ridiculous because it seems like this outlash was enough to get the physical name of the song changed. Is that what you were saying? Yeah, they changed the name. Well, let's play a clip right now. Okay, let's play the clip. <laughs> Yeah, so you guys should all uh, check out that song and read up on the history of it. But clearly, there was a lot behind it, and the name has now been changed. But Sophia, I think you bring up a very interesting point because hand in hand with this aspiration to be white or light skinned or have light skinned people features is this contrapositive of the fact that the opposite is bad, right? Like there's this anti black attitude that permeates everywhere, even in dating and marriage practices within our South Asian community. Mm -hmm. And I definitely want to use this podcast as an opportunity to bring awareness of this beautiful project that I've like recently um, discovered called the Blindian Project. And it just notes interracial marriages between blacks and Indians. So wait, it's on... It's on Instagram. Yeah. So if you guys go to Instagram and type in Blindian, Blindian Project, you will find this. And I love reading these stories of, of... mixed race couples coming together and talking but in the captions you often see these horrific things that these couples often have to go through like especially from the desi side the desi person often faces stigma in their community they often have to cut ties with their own family because the families are not accepting of of these changes and i just have a lot of trouble even just reading some of these captions because i can't imagine how tough it might be to pick between two of the biggest loves in your life and that's essentially what these people have to be forced to do because of this inherent stigma that exists and it's just another way that we see racism play out in our community have you seen any other instances sophia yeah i think i think that's definitely a big one what you just said um and another one i think is a little bit more nuanced but it's kind of like adopting these like 
Western nicknames. So, like, someone like Rohan changing his name to Roy and, like, just because, you know, that's easier and, like, assimilating to whiteness pretty much. But, like, at the expense of your own culture. And history and identity for sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, like, it's a little more nuanced and I know it's, like, assimilation is obviously a self-preservation like you know survival mechanism Mm -hmm. when you're in a new country but I do think it's one of those things that like it leads to this like idea of western culture being superior Mm -hmm. um and I want to say like obviously this probably doesn't apply to a lot of Christian Indians who have like biblical names like Mary and stuff like birth yep yeah like that's kind of different but I think if you have like sort of you know, a traditional South Asian name and then you, like, change it to a nickname or, like, people ask you, like, oh, that's too hard. Can I just call you, like, you know, Sam instead? Yeah. Like, you know. That's messed up. And I I am actually kind of guilty of this, I will agree, because, as I said, my name is actually Prirak, and I just get people to call me Prirak instead because it just fits the vernacular better. Um, And I definitely didn't realize... I almost got bought into just saying, like, whatever. It's easier for people. I'm just going to, like, say it that way. So I think I'm probably in the middle ground because I don't think I renamed myself to, like, Paul, which <laughs> I, I definitely could have done. Just be like, screw it. Just call me, like, P. You know? Yeah, that. people do that. <laughs> exactly. I, I can see why, right? Like, it's easier. But now I've been um, alive long enough and I have enough life experience that I actually respect people who correct me. So, like, for example, if someone – if I see their name and I call them Jordan and they're like, oh, it's actually Jordan. They correct me and I actually make it a point to say like, oh, like that's really good that you – they did that. Uh, for example, Stephen and Stefan is like another common oh, yeah. mispronunciation. Yeah. And I've seen people be really particular about that. And initially I used to be like, oh, okay, like cool, I'll make that change. But I didn't think much of it. And now I kind of realize like when people do that, they want to do it because they preserve their cultural heritage. They want to – kind of uphold whatever their name meant to them and their family. And so I'm definitely going to try to, you know, fend a bit more to myself and and kind of correct people moving forward a little bit more when maybe I feel like they aren't pronouncing my name nearly as well as they could. Um, So I think that's, that's, that's what you're mentioning where we're almost accepting and upholding the model minority stereotype when we, when we kind of implicitly agree to things like these. Yeah, I agree. Um, I mean, speaking of, like, the model minority stereotype, I think that's a big one. And I think, like, one of the common things that I've heard a lot is, like, they see people talking about how, oh, we've only been in the U.S. for, like, 30 years or 40 years. And, like, our kids are going to top schools. And, like, we've made so much progress. Like, why haven't black people made that much progress? Like, Oh, God, yeah. And, and I'm sure you've heard that. And it's just, like, I think we as younger people kind of have to be like, hey, like, it's not the same. Um, they have had to fight for their rights like so much and they haven't even had equal rights for so long and even now I mean you can make the argument that with you know all this police brutality and whatnot they still don't have equal rights yeah but all of the fighting that they did like that is what allows us to be here and have the rights that we do have exactly that's what people don't realize yeah it's like do you think that in 1850 white people were going to be like oh yes like Indian people, Pakistani people, come, like, have admission to our colleges. No problem. Like, here, have the right to vote. Like, we welcome you to have equal no, rights. No, yeah, that, that was not going to happen. No, exactly. Like, And the only reason it did was 
civil yeah. rights movement, right? Yeah. Like that is that, and that was literally Martin Luther King, all African Americans, just saying like, "Yo, this is uh, this is not the way it should be." Exactly, like the Voting Rights Act and things like that. Like they don't just apply to Black people. So like, all of those movements have benefited us, and you know, benefited us more than Black people. Yeah. I would argue because like because of the model minority myth and like now we get all these benefits but we need to sort of acknowledge where that where those come from and let's be very brutally honest about why this is a myth and i think everyone needs to understand this if we actually want to make sure we're on the same page we are a model minority and the reason why that even exists is because the people who come to the u.s from our countries are already pre-selected to succeed right it's almost like Mm -hmm. It's not like everyone from India is here. It's not like everyone from Pakistan is here. The people who are able to come here, one, are already really privileged and they have enough money to make that transition. Two, are academically superior in a lot of ways, right? Like they maybe are the top performer in their school and it gives them the opportunity to come here. So it's not like everyone can come here. And because of that, we're already pre-selected to succeed, right? And so when we get here and we do well, it's not so much a function of we worked hard. And and I'm sure I don't want to discredit the work we did, but it is pretty much a fact that we were already pretty good to begin with. No, I totally agree. I mean, there's two ways that people pretty much came here, right? One is if you come legally, then you're given a visa because you're a professional and you have some like, you know, qualifications. That the U.S. is going to benefit from. Yes. And the second way is that, fine, you come illegally, like you're overstaying on a visa. But even to get that visa, like a visitor traveler visa in the first place, you have to be pretty wealthy, right? Like, just think about it. When you go for that visa appointment in India or Pakistan, you have to provide evidence that, like, your family has, like, X amount of money. Otherwise, it's like, what are you doing taking a vacation to the U.S.? Exactly. Right? Like, you have to already be wealthy to even get... Like, to even come illegally, you have to be wealthy, which, like, you know, I'm not saying, like, wealth and qualifications are the same thing, but... But there's an association. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I think the one thing to circle back on all of this and why this is a myth is, like, for, for example, even the ability to even come here, that right came from the civil rights movement, right? Like, yeah. if, if we didn't have that movement, you bet your ass there would not be as many of us here as there currently are. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Exactly. Um, and I think, so the other thing that's important for us to sort of recognize is that our racism is internalized and it's also coming from the place of like having been colonized, mm-hmm. right? Like the subcontinent was colonized and I think there is a collective trauma that comes from that. And like, I think as a culture, there is a little bit of like an inferiority complex. That's a good point. Right? Like that's why we Solid think point, that, yeah. That's why we think that everything white is superior, right? Whether that's, like, in terms of physical appearance. Um, Even, like, back home, like, the super educated people will speak English, and, like, they kind of think it's lower class to speak the native language. I mean, I think this exists at, like, the highest levels. I don't think the average person is, like, too proud to speak Hindi or Urdu. That's not what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. But in, like, the highest classes, you can kind of see that. Like, for example, the show um, Fabulous Lives of Bollywood Wives, Mm -hmm. you see that. Like, they don't even talk in Hindi. Oh, wow. They only talk to, like, their maids in Hindi. Um, Wow. Like, basically anything that's from the West is seen as cooler and better. And... I think those of us, like you and I, who are in the West, are exposed to, you know, both cultures, and we kind of appreciate that more versus, like, people back home. I think they don't necessarily realize that, like, 
they're feeding into this inferiority complex or like that there is an inferiority complex. That's a brilliant observation. I never was able to put it into those terms, but that inferiority complex that you're saying now is like putting a lot of puzzle pieces in my head together. I was like, oh my God, I can see why we do that, you know? Um, So for years, like during colonization, we also shamed, you know, the lower caste um, showing preference again for lighter skin and deliberately putting like South Asian people and black people like against one another. Um, Mm -hmm. And another point is like, when we come here, we almost assimilate because it's a survival strategy. But in that assimilation, we're almost, it's making a choice by not making a choice, you know, like Mm -hmm. by assimilating, we're just being like, okay, this is the path of least resistance. So we pick that route. But guess what? In doing that, we're almost becoming part of this institutionalized framework that has, has consistently reaffirmed racism. I totally agree. I mean, so, okay, we've kind of talked now that like, about racism and that it exists in our community. We've established that. So like maybe we should talk about what are the next steps for all of us to address it and fix the issue and like become anti-racist. Yes. Um, and I think again, this show is all about improvement. So let's just start by saying what are the what's the smallest next step all of you and ourselves included can take. One thing I personally did is just educate, right? Like what how can I learn more about the history of racism? So, for example, I started listening to this podcast called 1619. Highly recommend, and I'll link it in the show notes as well. But it's the reason it's called 1619 is because that is actually the year that slaves were actually brought over. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you'll notice that that actually predates 1776, which is when America was founded. So there's there's a very long history of, of slavery for 400 years, right? That's huge. And so to even try to fight that 400 level, 400 years of change over like even 10 years is insignificant. And that's why you see like it's such a hard thing to accomplish. But mm-hmm. by educating ourselves and knowing like this is literally ingrained in every aspect of society, you can take one more step in understanding like, okay, it's going to take time, right? Similarly, like not just educating ourselves, educating our family, making sure they understand that this is 400 years. This is much deeper than anything they ever could even imagine, right? And recognizing that this is not just one and done. This is going to take time and it's because it's rooted in history. And just having that conversation, I think, can actually help like with my parents, it helped quite a bit for them to say like, oh my God, okay, I see. Like it's not just this is how it is and this is how it, like, it will always be. It's going to take a vol- it's going to take effort from everyone. Yeah, um, the conversation, I, I agree with that. Yeah. I think the conversation can even be open to like relating the British rule in India and Pakistan and asking about their own parents and how they felt, right? Like Indian independence was 1950. So yeah. it's not that long ago where we ourselves saw, saw – um, people being subject to inequalities, and so asking about the differences and similarities there. Um, yeah. So, and I think like explaining that what has happened with Black people is not the same as colonization. Because, yeah, and it's worse. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like you can. I think it's important to like kind of make that distinction and explain that like yeah, like okay, there was colonization, but, like, were people put in chains and, like, literally separated from their family and, like, forced to work in the fields? Like, did that happen? No. And, and, you know, our parents and grandparents, like, they will say, like, no, like, that wasn't a part of it. Yeah. Um, And I think, yeah, just trying to, like, show how it's different is really important because I don't know that – I don't know that all, like, older people get it. Yeah. I think that's solid. Do you have any other tips? Because I really like that one. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think obviously, like, the other thing is calling out racism when you see it. Um, 
But I think the challenge is, like, we first have to kind of fix the racism that exists within ourselves first. So, like, you can't just wake up and be an activist without, like, doing the work of educating (laughs) yourself. Um, I'm an activist now. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like, you have to read. And, like, I think reading is the most important thing. Um, And that literature is out there, right? Like, black people have done the work and, like, written um, and produced a lot of content um, and I think it's just, like, on us now to do the work and actually read. Um, and then I think beyond actually reading books, there are Black activists on Twitter, on Instagram, whatever. Like, following them is a good way to just get that exposure. I saw you. You've been doing a great job with that, actually. I see you, like, following them and showcasing what they're up to and, like, where I could go to educate myself. So I actually appreciate that a lot. Because Thank you. Yeah, that, yeah. That's, that's definitely one of the big tangible steps any of us can take yeah. is to follow these people that know more than we do and learn from them. Exactly, exactly. And, like, I think um, there are pages that also do a good job of putting out content that just gets you thinking. So, like, The Woke They See is a podcast, an Instagram page, and then there's South Asians for Black Lives, which is a really good page. And it's... I don't know. There's a lot of content on there that just, like, kind of starts the discussion or, like, gets you thinking about certain topics and mm-hmm. how certain things that we take for granted are actually problematic. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a really good first step. Great, Sophia. So my last recommendation, and this one's really hard, but it's actually, I personally think, the most effective, and that is to actually make friends who have gone through the experience on their own, like people who are African-American and black. Of course, I don't, like, advocate just going out and meeting you know, friends purely for this reason. But I do have a lot of friends who I knew were African-American. And when all of this happened, I was like, I had, I was like immobilized, right? Like I didn't even know like how to go about educating myself because I was like, I've never experienced anything like this. I don't know what it means. Um, where do I even start? And there were so many resources being thrown around by everyone. So what I did, the first thing I did was reach out to like the few black people I, I like genuinely love as some of my closest friends. I was like, Hey, clearly this is an issue. I don't know enough about it. I want to know more. Uh, And by doing this, I thought I was really building a genuine bridge. Because again, I think the most straightforward way to attack a problem is to acknowledge it exists and then find someone who knows more than you and ask them for help. And I think that applies to this Black Lives Matter movement. Um, And of course, if you can't make friends or, or you don't have any close friends, I think watching shows with black characters as main roles, reading books that have black characters as main roles, because oftentimes these shows and books are, are built on people who know the experience. So yeah. if you don't know someone, one of the best things to do is to read about their experiences or learn about them in that way. Yeah. Uh, and no, so I totally agree. I mean, that's like the next best thing, right? People become so attached to the characters in, in their TV shows or characters in the books that they're reading. Like, that's the next best thing. Yeah. And I feel like that's the reason that, you know how sometimes when talking about racism, people will be like, oh, I'm not racist because I have a black friend. Like, the reason they make that argument is because, like, you know, I don't think that argument is true and valid. Obviously, it's not. You can still be racist and have a black friend. Mm -hmm. But I think the reason people make that argument is because they're just thinking, like, I have this black person in my life that I love so much. Like, how could I possibly be racist? Like, and it does... While I don't think the argument is valid, it does show that you, like, have some empathy for a black person and that that, like, can be generalized to the black community in general. Mm -hmm. 
I don't know if that makes any sense. I think it does because what you're hinting on is you – the paradoxes exist is essentially what you're saying because we all can say we have strong beliefs about something and the good part is – like if you have a black friend and you or someone says that you said something racist, you already have like a resource you can turn to and say, hey, I agree. Like maybe I need to be better educated about this and this is what someone said and this is what I think implies that I was being racist. Can you tell me how I can do better? And I think the good part here is like you're giving yourself a solution to the very problem. But that just because you have a black friend doesn't mean you're not racist. So to yeah, speak. yeah. I guess I think it's just like when you have empathy towards one person or you love one black person, it kind of feels like, no, like I care about this community. Like I'm not racist. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? Because there's obviously some cognitive dissonance there. If you, A, like have this one black person that you love, but then are, you know, implicitly or like harming the black community by... You know, your implicit actions, which exactly. you may not be aware of. But the exactly. good part is you clearly have shown you have empathy for them. So your racism is probably not intentional. And so you can actually so educate you can yourself improve. and improve it. Right. Like, yeah, as we said, versus this, someone who like is intentionally or like, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not saying it's OK if like it is unintentional. I don't know. It's It's very complicated. But I think empathy can be like you can draw on your empathy for one person and, like, extend that to the whole community and use that as motivation to, to like... change. Yeah, to change. Exactly. And that's what this podcast was all about. And I thought that that was actually a great way to end, Sophia, because our big theme here was change, right? We're not going to solve this. This is 400 years of institutionalized, cha- like, things that have been around. So we're not going to solve this today, tomorrow, or even within the next year. But what we all can do is, you know, just kind of make little inches and progress forward and educate ourselves and realize that we all at one point or another probably can be or have been racist and we need to do a bit better. Right. Absolutely. And that's, that's one thing we all can take away. Yeah, I totally agree. We are going to list some resources in the show notes for you guys. Yes. Um, And we really enjoyed doing this episode. Hopefully we can continue to have meaningful discussions like this going forward. But we need you guys to rate, review, and subscribe. Five Um, stars only. (laughs) Yes, five stars only. (laughs) Um, And please like share with a friend, screenshot, and share this on Insta Story. Um, We really appreciate your support. And you guys are our marketing department. So please and thank you. And we will see you next episode. Bye. Thanks for listening.